Let's just briefly pray and then we'll look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. And we pray that now uh, the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. You are our strength and our redeemer. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would like to look at verse 21 this morning. And verse 21 reads this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is a verse which is quite condensed. There's a lot um, to be said there, and we won't um, pull it all out this morning. But God willing, that's what I'd like to do. Now, a couple of days a week, I work as a school teacher, and we, in PE, we've done some Olympic-style um, activities, events. One of those is sprinting. You might look at a sprinter and think, it's just a case of what genetics you've got. You're good at sprinting, the next person isn't. If you've got the right build and you just have 10 seconds to run down that track, well, you're a fast person and that's all there is to it. There's truth in that, isn't there? There's some things that you've just got a natural aptitude for. But even if you're Usain Bolt or one of those top sprinters, you can't decide a week, a fortnight before that final. You can't say, do you know what? I'm going to do chicken nuggets for uh, every night for two weeks. I just fancy doing that. You can't leave that life of discipline if you want to win. There's so much more to that life than meets the eye. It's not just a case of he got up in the morning and he was the fastest, he ran down the track. There's a life of discipline and there's a study of each aspect of that race. There's the, there's the start of that race. There's the posture. There's his diet. There's how you finish that race. There's all kinds of elements to any successful sports person, the things that they do, which, which we miss, and yet they're there, and, if, and that person has to live a life of dedication if they want to win. I find people like that impressive. People who are able to get up each day and drive for one thing. It's hard to get out of bed sometimes. It's very hard to keep trusting God every day. We find that, if we're honest, there are days when uh, we're unbelieving. We're sinning by being unbelieving. But we look at Paul, and though we don't see a perfect man by any means, he says this, he says that the love of Christ compels him. Through the love of Christ, he had found something that compelled a driven life. The love of Christ drove him to pursue one thing with diligence. And when we see him, we're supposed to imitate him as he imitated Christ. We're not to think, well, that's just the Bible. That's the apostle. We're ordinary. That's not for us. The same Holy Spirit who empowered him 
is the one who empowers you. In chapter six, we had a list of his life. Some of those things that characterized him in chapter 11. He gives us some more of it. If you look at chapter 11, verse uh, 25, he says, I was beaten with rods three times. I was stoned. He's been shipwrecked three times. A night and a day he's been in the deep. And then he says he's been in journeys often in perils of waters, robbers, his own countrymen, Gentiles, perils in the city, the wilderness, the sea, among false brethren. He's had a life of weariness and toil, verse 27, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, fastings, cold, nakedness. He really drives the point home. And he's constantly has this burden, this sense of concern for all the churches. But he says this, the love of Christ compels him. Now, I want to know what it is. What is it about the love of Christ? What's he found there? Well, in verse 21, and this is the verse a bit lower down, says, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's his son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I believe in this verse, if we understand it, we will see something of why the love of Christ compelled Paul. And we will find, in a sense, the fuel that the Holy Spirit will use to keep us pursuing God and pursuing uh, the life we know we should live uh, with, with, with his help. We'll find the, in a sense, not the, not the some secret key, but we'll find the gospel, which is where all true motivation comes from. Now, I don't know if you like modern art. Uh, you might have done a bit yourself. The truth is all of us are quite good at modern art. You just need a, an empty canvas and choose a few pots of paint. It doesn't really matter what color and just sling them on. And we'll each do our own. And you look at that and you can't really criticize it because it's just this, this kind of riot of color. And yeah, it's your artwork. Now you get the art critic in. It's a very learned uh, sort of boffin to come in and give their interpretation, to interpret that and tell us what it means. So they come in and they give us some very, uh, very convincing sounding interpretation. You get the next art critic in. You haven't told them that the first person's already done it and they give you their interpretation. What are you going to find? They give you two completely different things. And you know all the time, well, actually, you were messing around. You were just sloshing it on. It didn't mean anything. You can take that approach, and it's very dangerous when you come to the pictures that God gives us. God gives us pictures in the Bible, real events in history, but all the same, very vivid pictures for us to see. And it doesn't leave it open to interpretation. Does that make sense? So if if he tells us about the cross of Jesus, he tells us what happened. He tells us the events before, during and after. He hasn't left it in the dark to us so that each of us has to come up with the interpretation of what we think was happening. So one person could say, 
Well, I think that that was, it's just showing, it's just showing he loved us in a kind of vague, undefined way. The next person comes along and says, I think that was, Jesus was, was a would-be revolutionary figure and then it failed. And this is how it ended. So it's a tragic story. God tells us exactly what it means. And in verse 21, God is giving his own authoritative meaning, his interpretation, his explanation of the cross. And he's saying, this is what it means. When you see what's happening there, this is the meaning and this is what you must know for your life. So that's simply what I want to do. I want to kind of break out some things here which will help us to understand the cross because that's what this verse is about and i haven't got some sort of fancy kind of uh, mnemonics where everything is beginning with the same letter they're just kind of independent points really but overall i hope they'll be helpful the first one is this as we get stuck in the cross is not first of all about men to think about that the cross is not first of all about men now what do i mean you might be planning this summer to be going on holiday perhaps you've already been and what do you do on a typical beach holiday you spend your time on that beach well you might sunbathe you might go to the ice cream van you might if you're a bit younger go and do some crabbing and sandcastles you might paddle a bit in the waves and you're having a good time on that seaside. But what's the main thing, really, at the seaside? What's the big thing which, without it, it's all boring and it's just a piece of sand? It's the sea. It's that vastness which you, you have that sense of awe that you just stare at you realise that I can paddle so far, but if I go too far in, I'll die. And you look out and you see the horizon and it strikes you that I'm so small and this is so big. The seaside is not really about the seaside. It's about the sea. That's the big thing there. When we look at the cross of Jesus, it is true that Men were doing cruel things, absolutely. It is true that we see things as a result of the betrayal of Judas. We see the cruelty of Roman soldiers. We see the wickedness of the Jews. We see the, uh, the, maybe the, the sadness of the people who loved Jesus, who were standing by. We see all those things. But the cross is not, first and foremost, about those things. The big thing, the awesome thing, the thing that we feel like I can't get to the bottom of this, is that this is something taking place between the eternal God, the Father, and his incarnate Son. It's he, the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There's the first thing we have to remember about the cross. This is a place where... God is drawing near and he's revealing himself and he's pointing our eyes 
away from us and away from men to himself. The second thing that we must see in the cross of Christ is that it is shocking because it is the cross of Christ. It is shocking because it is the cross of Christ. Now, in many parts of uh, the UK in the past, coal mining was a kind of staple uh, economic activity. Uh, My my grandfather was, was a coal miner down in South Wales, and you hear stories of coal mining being quite unsafe, people dying in the coal mines. If you work in that life, and, and there would be many men who, that's what they went into as teenagers probably, and they lived their whole lives, that was what they did, their whole career, and then they died. You were used to that life. You're used to this dark place where it's dirty, where the coal dust is getting into your lungs. You're used to this place which is a bad atmosphere and it's slowly killing you. And it's just normal. And you get up in the morning unquestioned, unquestioning, right, I'm going to work. And you just go down the pit again. You're used to it. But now you and I, who I'm probably, none of us have been down a coal mine and work there, correct me if I'm wrong. If we were going to go down, we've never been in that conditions. We would think, how can you live in this? How can you work in this? This is awful. We're very, um, and I'm not saying this is wrong, we're very used to sort of very correct health and safety things where we ex- expect the employer to give us this, that and the other and everything's got to be just so. didn't used to be like that. The, those conditions, that would be a shock to our system. Now, in some small way, do you see Jesus? He's the pure son of God. He's come from glory. And he's come down into a place which is full of sinners who sin the whole time. A place where there are people like you and me who lie, who lust, who get angry, who are selfish, people who... Um, are so concerned about things that don't matter. People who are willing to destroy and ruin others, other people's lives just so that our lives might be a little bit better. We're, we're kind of used to the world. That's all we've ever known. We don't really realize how unnormal the society we live in, how odd our own lives are, how unhuman they are, how inhuman. But Jesus comes down. He not only has to live in this place and he lives perfectly, but he is then the one who is sent to the cross and he is made sin. Think of how, uh, how shameful that was for him. That this is a place which is, he has no natural attraction to in a sense. He doesn't want to be near sin. And yet out of love, he comes and he doesn't just stand on the kind of the top of a mountain and shout down. He comes right down amongst us. He rubs shoulders. He touches sinners. He eats with them. And finally, he goes to the cross for them. It's shocking, the cross, because it's Jesus who died. And then the third thing 
about the cross we see here is that it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The cross is a place of great darkness. The cross is a place of great darkness. Now, we have to understand what this, this phrase means. If you look at verse 21, it says, he made him who knew no sin, so Jesus who is sinless, to be sin for us. So it already gives us something of the explanation. It stops us going wrong. It's saying, it's not saying he committed sin or he became sinful because it has said he knew no sin. But it is saying he became sin for us. And to help us understand that, you know, when you were coming to the church this morning, you saw many things as you were driving along and you may have seen uh you may have seen fields and you would have seen buildings and you would have maybe seen people walking along but what you didn't see were any sins what do i mean sins aren't just things that are out there the problem in the world in a sense you understand what I'm saying, the problem in the world isn't sin in some vague sense, but it is sinners. The problem that we see in society is not that there's, oh, there's such a sin problem. No, there's a sinner's problem. And if there were no sinners, then there would be no sin. So when it says that Jesus was made sin, that those that sin must belong to someone it belongs to sinners and so what it is saying is that he is being identified with the real sin of real people sin isn't just out there sin belongs to sinners so for him to be made sin he has to be identified with sinners and this is what it is saying it is saying that my sin the sins of the world are being laid on him and he is being identified with them. And we need to try and catch a sense of the, the horror of that. If I were to suddenly kill a fly in front of you because it was bothering me, you might uh, be able to sympathise because it's not nice to be bothered by flies, is it? And you wouldn't be thinking for the rest of the day, wouldn't occur to you later on, that was a really despicable thing. Killed a fly. Why not? Because flies aren't that important to us. We don't think they have that much value. But let's say you're in an art gallery, you're admiring the paintings and they're true works of art. And then somebody next to you gets out a standing knife and starts scoring one of these masterworks You'd be angry. You would think, now that is wrong. And the reason you would think it is wrong is you know that that painting has great value. And then we ramp it up even more and you, you hear that some terrible murder has taken place. You know that this is wrong because a person has great value. What has more value than, than people in this world? then why is sin serious? Well, because sin is committed against God. 
and he has supreme value. He is the one who is the source of everything else. He's the one who created everything. Every good thing you enjoy reflects him and comes from him. And when we sin, we are saying, I would like to have the whole universe and everything in it and all the good things for myself, but I would like to kill you. That's what sin is. Sin is the expression of our hearts where we're saying, I want absolutely anything except you, yourself. It's you I don't want. And your commandments, I don't want them. I will take your gifts, but I want to rule myself. I don't want you. And that's the seriousness of sin. And it's from that selfishness. There's a verse in James which says, where envy and self-seeking are, confusion and every evil thing are there. And that's what we see in the world. We see the way people uh, people live lives of lying and stealing and abusing and swearing and selfishness and pretty much all the things that you and I have done and the things which we see other people doing. We can't point the finger. All these things, that's what sin is. And it's ugly and it's vile. And it's that that expression of our hearts where we want to do away with God altogether. We'd like him to to cease to exist. It's all that sin that is put on him. All that ugliness, all that vileness. It's that that is laid on Jesus. And in himself, he's got no desire to be anywhere near that sin. But it's laid upon him. It says in Isaiah, doesn't it? 53, he, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And if you think of it like clothing, as an image to help us, think of him there as he's hanging on the cross. He is clothed with the filth and the ugliness of the sins of the world. So the cross is a dark place. And it's in that capacity as our sin bearer that the wrath of God falls on him. Because Although he had done no sin and he deserved no wrath, he is bearing your sin. And so the wrath of God fell on him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And that's why we say that the the cross is a place of horror and darkness, because there he's made sin. But then the fourth thing is that the cross, the, the cross of Christ is also the place of light. He knew no sin. And this is a mystery that even though the father's anger fell on him, at the same time, it never ceased to be true that he was God's beloved son in whom he was well pleased. He never ceased to be God's son. He never ceased to be God's beloved son. And what he was doing, he was actually doing in obedience to God. He was being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, even being made sin. And he he said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to go there. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And He is well-pleasing to God, 
such that he's become obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name. And every knee, your knee, will bow to him. And one of the reasons, the great reason you will bow, is he's not only the creator God, but he is the incarnate son who has come and he's done this. It really pleased the Father. And we see God has given us, he has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you see that darkness, simultaneously you see great light. And that's the, uh, the mystery of the cross. It reveals to us like nowhere else what is evil and wrong. And it shows us like nowhere else what is glorious and good. And then finally, the cross of Christ is the place which reveals the righteousness of God. And this is the final point, and this is uh, so important. We've said that he has taken my sin. He has taken something from me. And he has not only taken, but he's also given. And it works like this. If he has been identified with all that you have done, it is so that you might be identified with all that he has done. I want you to remember that. If he has been identified with your sin, it is so that you might be identified with his righteousness. And the the image used in the Bible is that of you you think of the vine and the branches. The you can in a sense you can speak of the vine and you can speak of the branches as kind of distinct ideas, and yet you can't separate them. They are one. In the gospel, by faith, we're united to Jesus Christ. The other picture the Bible uses, one of them is that as a man is united to his wife in marriage, so Jesus Christ is united to his people, and the two become one. And in that union, your sins are given to him, but he also gives to you. And you receive his righteousness. And that means this. It means that just as when the Son of God was clothed with all your sin, and he became, therefore, the object of the wrath of God, that means that you are clothed with his righteousness and therefore you are the object of God's blessing. And it's not based on anything you've done, but it's based on what he has done. Righteousness is to fulfill God's law and he has lived a perfect life. He has kept the law and he has taken the penalty that the law demanded for those who break the law. In every way, he has fulfilled God's law. He has been perfectly righteous. And you in Christ, if you're a believer, are identified with that. So God looks at you, even though you still sin, 
And that righteousness, which is not your own, becomes your own in union with him. And this means that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because if you are clothed with his righteousness, then it is fitting and just and right that God's blessing and eternal life rains down upon you, just as it was fitting that the wrath of God rained down on his son at the cross. You can't have one without the other. That's the way the gospel works. So if you are in Christ, old things have passed away. Your sins are gone and you are righteous in him. And Paul says in verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He says, just after that verse 21, which we've been focusing on, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And here's the thing. We are united to Jesus Christ, not by what we do, but by faith. Without faith, you still stand in your own clothing. That's how you stand. And though you probably can't remember What you did on every day last week, we forget very quickly. God does. God knows everything you did in your your whole life. And I can't remember um, all the days of my life. I can't remember what I did on each day. But I have this uncomfortable knowledge that I know they weren't good days. And God, you see, sees them with the same crystal clarity as you can remember the last five seconds. He sees your whole life, all the thousands of days of your life, filled with the sins that you've committed. And if you have not been united by faith to him, you stand in the filthiness of those sins. And so at the moment, you are a fit, a just object of his wrath. So you must be reconciled to God. You must trust in him that you may receive this gift of righteousness. But then to the to the Christian, to the one who knows peace with God, this is a great encouragement to live a life pursuing those things that we know we should pursue. Because we realize that the starting point is no condemnation. There's still a lot of work to be done in your life and in my life. All sorts of things that still need doing. And if we picture your life like a quarry, there's all kinds of hard and heavy work that needs to be done and God will do it in your life. But if you are united to him, then you're already righteous, legally, in God's eyes. You are already in that place of blessing. And so remember this, as that work goes on in the quarry of your life, and sometimes it's hard and it's painful, remember that all the time the sun 
shines over that quarry. The righteousness of God, that declaration of God is over your whole life, the whole time. And when you sin and you fall down, as it were, and you think, wow, this is, uh, you look up and you think it must be cloudy. No, it's not. The sun shines, that declaration of God, righteous in my sight. And in that knowledge, you can pursue righteousness. You can pursue holiness. You can get up, though the righteous man falls seven times, you can get up and go again. If my brother sins against me, how many times shall I forgive him? Remember that question? And seven times? Seventy times seven? What's the point? God knows that you're going to sin 70 times seven times. You're going to fail that many times. Actually, if you do the maths, you're going to do more than 70 times seven because it's not that big a number. God knows that. If you have trusted in him, then he sees the end from the beginning and he has said, righteous, who shall God's elect condemn? So as we continue for the rest of this day, as you go out and you uh, you face your yourself and you face the world and you think, how can I do this? Remember this, this is the strength in which we walk. We read that passage from Isaiah 45 um, earlier on. And the last verse of that passage says this. Verse 24 and 25 says, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come. And verse 25, In the Lord all the descendants of Israel, Israel, and you can include yourself in a sense, shall be justified and shall glory. Let him who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the light and the liberty and the clarity of your word. And we pray, Father, that we would walk as children of light. And we would walk as those who know that it is daytime and who see the sun shining. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.